You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Thank you. 
amazing book of Ellen. Um, and so I figured uh, we talk about some of the themes in the text, talk about some of the poems in a more granular, granular level, um, and then also even have you read some of your some of your work. And then we'll pass it over to the audience to ask some questions um, after we chat a bit about the text. All right? Okay, cool. Um, so um, as Tracy mentioned, I, I got my MFA uh, from UV in Creative Writing and Publishing Design. So um, before we even talk about the text, I looked at the cover and I was like, that is my first question. I'm wondering, <laughs> um, from a design perspective, what was the idea behind just the cover itself? I feel like it speaks values and I'm wondering, what was the idea behind the cover of that one? Um, I have no idea. No, I have no idea. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, the last idea that didn't have the cover, actually. And I, I had told the publisher, I said, I don't want a cover, and I don't want a title. And they were like, well, that's not going to happen. Because <laughs> I also want my name on it. I just want the whole thing to just be black. And they were like, we could go with no cover art, but we, we will have a title. And then I told them the title was, and it was Bastards of Rain Air. And, um, and they said, we don't know if we want to call it Bastards of Rain Air because you won't get reviewed in certain places. You know, Bastards, profanity. I was like, shit, that's the profanity. <laughs> then I was like, well, my bad, I didn't mean to curse. And um, so he said, so I said, I'm going to go with asses. And he said, okay, we'll go with no cover art. But if you want to go with asses, we'll do that. We'll go with no cover art. And if it comes back to haunt you, you just learn how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned out to be great because the book got reviewed in more places than any of my work had reviewed before. And um, so in the comments, the, the title became a way to start a conversation. Um, and it fit not having any cover art for that particular book. And for this one, I was when I was trying to decide what I wanted on the cover, and I was working on another project with my friend um, Titus. So the artist who created these pieces, these pieces are on a series called The Jerome Project. And Titus was working, he was looking for um, the mugshot of a guy named Jerome. And, and looking for this mugshot, he ended up finding like, 99 different names and faces of men um, with the same first and last name who were incarcerated. And then while I was working on this, I was working on a poem and I was thinking about my own work as a public defender. I was a public defender for about a year. And it's crazy, man, because you get somebody's name and you have to look up their record. And so I looked up this guy's name and I just used his first and his last name. And several names came up. I sort of just clicked the one I thought was him. And I realized, and I got all of the paperwork for the wrong person. And so what hit me was, again, the importance of, like, if, if an attorney is looking at somebody's name, they don't just look at the name, they also look at the birthday, because people frequently have the same name. And so that just made me think, when I was working on this poem, what was I trying to say about, like, incarceration? What was I trying to say about being incarcerated? One of the things was, like, just, like, the word felon, serious, and everything. And so I wanted to get some imagery that suggested the way the word felon, serious, and everything. And I thought that this was perfect, you know, you had these images, uh, these like beautifully printed portraits that are hidden in tar, and then the tar is an obvious representation of what it means to be a steward um, and partially erased. So. All right, that was okay. Interesting. Thank you. I think um, um, it, that speaks to, if I'm not mistaken, you allude to um, the, I guess, the cover art or the story behind it. Um, 
in a poem in the book where you talk about um, you mentioned this notion of being dipped in tar and this idea of um, um, the obscurity, I guess, of the prison system. So that's that's very interesting. Um, you you talked about it some already, but I'm just wondering. Um, um, you were talking when we were in the green room about how you've written. Um, you were telling me you were going to vote for it. And I was like, I was like, I cannot believe you're going to vote for this person. And basically, I'm not, I'm not going to say you should vote for these decisions. You should be proud of it. Frankly, it astonished me. Um, go ahead. It should astonish me. I didn't answer the question. Um, but she said it's not small talk. I said, but it is small talk. It's like, you know, we don't vote for the things we don't think it's like girlfriend right now, you know? I suppose. Um, but another thing that we were talking about um, was that, you know, you've written several books of poetry, and they all kind of revolve around, um, you know, prison and mass incarceration. Um, and you said, like, you, you mentioned, like, everything is, like, prison in, in your writing and how you still feel like it was a different approach to each book. And so I was wondering, with this particular text, um, what, what was your hope as in writing it? And also, what did you want us as readers and the audience to take from this, to glean from this? Oh, man, I don't want to be ungracious, but I don't know if I've ever written a poem uh, made in the current, so say anything um, with hope of what people would take away from it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, I mean, I'm not a politician. I guess if I was a politician, then that's how I would like frame the things that I do and I would want it to be intentional in that way. I sort of try to tell the truth, and sometimes you tell the truth, people don't like it. Sometimes when you tell the truth, people do. But, um, so even publicly, you know, I'm trying to tell the truth. Now I hope some folks enjoy it. Some folks might not. But if I sit down and write a poem, I mean, mainly I'm trying to tell the truth. I thought that I was, I imagined an audience when I was writing, then what I would be creating, I think, would be art as much as um, it would be propaganda. And so, you know, these poems stretch, I mean, years, you know, the poems stretch. Um, one of the poems talks about me voting for Barack Obama. And, and, and this was a while ago. This was a very different day in America, you know. And my children were much younger than they are now. So that poem is a, a completely different moment. So um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I, uh, I do. I'm certain that I wasn't thinking about any reader when I wrote the poem. And, and I had that luxury, though, because, you know, I learned how to write in prison. And, and I began to write in prison. And I sort of didn't write with, like, this expectation that I would have people who would read what I wrote. I wrote with this expectation that the writing might help me get through to the next day. And then part of the writing was a realization that the writing actually helped me figure out how to think in a different way. But, um, but I don't know if I ever imagined an audience. If I was a rock star, I would think more about audience. I don't know if that's like for me a rock star. You know, I would think about audience a lot. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, we don't have enough black rock stars. I feel like when I was growing up, you know, one of the things that actually bothers me about like culture and community, and I'm not from Louisiana, I should just really make that correction. I, I am decidedly not from Louisiana. <laughs> Did you see my face? It was I was like, I'm letting go. I was like, no. And when I grew up, Bowie was, you know, it was a suburb of DC, and it was nearly all the way. But it was like, it might as well be never, never. You know, I grew up in Peach County, I grew up in Super Maryland, and my world really 
at the prison. Ruth, paper maker, take these tattered gray sweats, make paper of my bid, a past I won't reject after the prison. The state murdered to leave with a single high bill, always innocent. Did he fear times was back after the prison? Dear warden, my time been served, let me go. Promise that some of this I won't recollect after the prison. My mother has died, my father, a brother, and two cousins. There is no God, no reason to genuflect after the prison. Jeremy Force rejected the template, said for it to be funky to flaunt, must redact after the prison. He came home saying righteous coochie and jive turkey. All in all she is, his slain architect after the prison. The printer sits between the world on the black paper. When ink, earth reveals what we neglect after the prison. My homeboy says he's done with all that prison shit. His wife and baby girl gave him love to protect after prison. The fools say you, become, you can become anything when it's over. Told him straight up, ain't nothing to resurrect after prison. You have come so far, beloved. And for what? Another song? This sing. Shaheed, your love, not shipwrecked after prison. Um, since we're here, you know, we have like pick poems. I really like this book because I can just flip through and be like, oh, damn, this is good. I'm going to read this one to you. But um, since we're going to jump back into the question, I'm like, thematically choose some poems. What's like really interesting is, um, is for me, the poetry book is always an exploration of my obsessions. And so some of those obsessions are things that I've experienced, and some of those obsessions are things that I'm thinking about. But one of the obsessions that occur here is sort of fatherhood. There's a number of poems. They have a number of poems that contemplate fatherhood. So I'm going to read, um, I'm gonna read three of those and then I'll come back. Um, blood history. The things that abandon you get to remember the different. As precise as the English language can be, with words like penultimate and perseverate, there is not a combination of sounds that describe only that leaving. Once, Drinking and smoking with buddies, a friend asked if I longed for a father. Had he said wanted, I would have dismissed him the way the youngest dismissed it all. A shrug, sarcasm, a jazz to his stomach, laughter. But he said longing. And in a different place, I might have wept. Said once my father lived with us, and then he didn't, and it fucked me up so much I never thought about his leaving till I held my own son in my arms. And only now speak on it. A man who drank Boone's farm and mad dog like water once told me and some friends that there is no word for father where he comes from. Not like you know it. There the word for father is the same as the word for listen. The blunts we passed around us forget our tongues. Not that much so. But what if the old head knew something? And if you had no father, you can't history. Years later, Another friend wondered why I named my son after my father. You know, that's the thing, turning your life into a prayer that no dead man will answer. All right, two more. So one is, um, it's interesting, like, you know, writing memoir and, um, and writing poetry, because when you write poetry, you always think about the stories that you want to tell 
And when you recommend them, like, you always think about the stories that you don't want to tell. And, um, and I guess the difference is, is mostly that uh, when you recommend them, like, you gotta tell your own stories. Or you could be one of those guys who make things up and get really rich and famous and have to pay back a small portion of the profits when they find out you laugh. Man, I started to be that. I actually was. I actually never been in prison before. And I feel, I feel compelled to tell the truth today. No, I swear I made it all up. I thought if I lied about being in prison, I would get it in the old school much easier. Alright, so, um, Instead of kind of a crow, 
the murder of Azumi. An employer searching our history will find felonies in divorce proceedings. The online account of our background is song with tragedy and regret. A public defender or prosecutor seeking our truth finds a desert men with portions of our names. Variations and fragments and records of men who've been called before a judge for everything from domestic violence to traffic tickets to something called jury trial prayer. And everything I did landed me in all those prison cells. There is no way to distinguish us without a birthday, as if our first breath is a signature separating who from who. In 1960, eight years before the king's assassination sparked the torture of his city, my father was born. And 20 years later, Justice Crack would make my father's home burn again. I ride like that man's shadow. The room filled with us. When I enter, our regrets, our anger, our history, and the echo that sounds when I speak. The decade I now own somehow more and more like the decades he has lost. Though, in a way, I know this is the kind of thing he called bullshit on. And point out that there is nothing in the cracks and tremors and bass lines of my voice that suggests the six-story window he leaped from, as if to test the theory of man in flight the tattoo wing that I obsess over. And maybe he's right. This unwieldy path of contrition or reform or mourning we both find ourselves walking has never been wide enough. Still, I come from a man who's nursed more than whiskey, meaning who's nursed it all. From a pistol to a prayer to a small child in his arms because of daddy. Those revelations are the kind of story a man who only has his own name could never own. Because you're hearing for the pattern, it's 
kind of cool to see him break the tie too, because the rules are meant to be broken. And so um, so that's sort of the structure of the first poem. And then so I did glad that I choose the phrase after prison to end with because much of this book is talking about this notion that like um, somebody I somebody I got a review that was published today and said uh, what does it say? It says uh, after prison lawyer and ex-con tries poetry something like that and um, and so one of my folks was like I really hate the word ex-con you know I think we should use language that doesn't diminish you and I was like. Well, I didn't really think the word ex-con ministry, but okay. And, and, and the point that I was trying to make to him is that I think it's just descriptive. And I think felony is just descriptive. And it's a true descriptive. An ex-con refers to somebody who was a carbonate, who was in prison. So I'm cool with that. I'm a whole bunch of things. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a you know, retired basketball player from uh, basketball league for like, 15 and other, but I'm still excited. <laughs> and, and my thing is like, now this book is supposed to really be my attempt to express what it really needs to be incarcerated, but I don't want you to be involved. I don't want us to assess the language. I don't really want you to say, don't call this man a felon, you would dehumanize him. First, I don't want you to decide when I'm being dehumanized. I think I can handle that for myself. I think there's a whole lot of other problems and challenges you could deal with, and if you like to talk about language, you could talk about the language that you prefer to you. But I don't want to pretty talk about why some people you know that's in your community, that's in your family, would not hire me because I'm a felon. Because you tell them not to call me a felon, not to call me an ex-convict, it's not going to encourage them to get in your job. And so, oh, I didn't cut it off, but it was like, I don't like what you're saying. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so, so on the back of prison, the circle that's happening is like, all of these things you don't say. See, it's suggesting that these things happen after prison, but then it returns to a game trying to do something different after prison. It's almost like reinforcing the fact that you were incitement. And then the last couple, you got to sign your own names. And so it's like, um, and everybody calls me Shaheen in prison. So it's like, Shaheen, another song, then sing, beloved. You're not shipwrecked after prison. And so the last, the last couple chapters end on a hopeful note, right? Chapter end on this notion that like there is hope um, in, in all this stuff. I see somebody set up to give questions to the audience. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. And so uh, I noticed twice um, in in this poem that you mentioned redaction. Um, and I thought it was interesting because as we're talking about form, which you play around with a lot in this book, um, there are a series of poems throughout the book that present as redacted or as erasure poems. Um, and so I was interested, one, and this is going really, really deep on like a subtle level, um, the couplet where it says, um, he knows redaction is a dialect after prison. Um, I was really interested in, in like the specificity of that line and how it then echoes this, again, erasure or redacted-like form that you use in many poems um, throughout the book. So could you speak a little bit about it? Yes, I think, um, so first thing, I guess my notion of redaction, I think Titus' notion of redaction too, so Titus' clause is brilliant. 
visualize. And um, it's, it's funny, you know, the way we met, well, we, the way we met doesn't matter. But what's funny is, right before we met, we both got commissioned to do pieces for the Harvard Architecture Journal. And so they wanted to base on his work up with a writer. And they didn't tell me, they didn't even tell me that they were doing this part of the project. They just asked me about some inside. And so I submitted something, and they ended up pairing our piece with um, two images from the drone project. But what was wild was this was in 2015, and both of us had the magazine, because when you, when you get published by the place, they generally give you the magazine, but neither one of us looked at the journal. So we didn't know that the editor had paired our work together. So then, uh, and this was before we met. So then we met, and we always talked about working together, but he has children, I have children, and it's really hard to figure out to do a collaboration with another artist, hard to figure out what would work, what would make sense. And so it's just not clear if it would happen. And then I, I got the idea that you need to reaction on because partly I was trying to find a way to make my life as a lawyer intersect with my life as a poet. And so if you've ever seen the legal document, and, and in particular, I work on his lawsuit, there's people who got locked up and couldn't afford to pay bail, and then they were locked up for X amount of time so they could either pay bail or they charged with bail, and then they were home. And they were filing a lawsuit against the city of Missouri, um, Alabama, Houston. They were filing lawsuits against these states, right? And cities within those states. Um, Houston's not a state. I think it's Texas is a state. But anyway, they were filing these lawsuits. But I, but I, I looked at the lawsuit and I was like, this is 70 pages. I'm a lawyer. I am not going to read this. And in fact, I might set it on fire. In fact, I'm going to use the shot paper, the shot paper journal, and I'm not an attorney sitting on the back side. It's usually not going to get outside. So I'm like, I'm finding all these useful things to do with this lawsuit other than read it. And I thought, if I'm not willing to read it, nobody else is willing to read it. And if we do actually acknowledge that the courts of the law is one of the places that law is DNA, then we've got to acknowledge that these lawsuits are actually relevant because it's the people saying, you are violating my constitutional rights by keeping me incarcerated because of my inability to pay a fee. And so I said, how do I turn this into a poem then? Because it's only relevant if it could become music. And, and it was a challenge. And then you think about redaction, redaction is usually what we use to, um, we say that this is above the pay grade, that you can't read this because it's confidential. Well, I wanted to argue that by redacting huge portions of this piece, I was getting rid of what was purpose. And so I changed like a seven-page lawsuit into a four-page poem or a ten-page poem. And I'll just read the first page of In Missouri. In Missouri. In Missouri, et al. versus the city of Ferguson. The plaintiffs, people, jailed by the city. The city kept the human in its jail. The person pleaded poverty, held indefinitely. Threatened, abused, left to languish, frightened. Family members could buy their freedom. And um, and so that was the start of it. And then what and then Titus work was already like dealing with redactions, but dealing with like redacting in a different way and using different tools, dealing with juxtaposing the past to the present, dealing with revealing things by showing other things. And he already had his portrait of living dealing with redaction. And I think what he suggests to me. It's all of the meaning, all of the sort of, all of the life that's here 
it's attempted to be erased by incarceration, but I think part of it is like the story is still there. And some of them are real through history actions and a sort of raw scene of having 99 men relatively the same name, all black men, who have faced the same conditions. It forces us to ask, to ask this question about a very peculiar American problem, which is uh, mass incarceration. Absolutely. I thought it was so interesting because um, the poem I actually was going to actually read um, was in Zurich. And um, it was interesting because uh, it made me think about all the articles about the um, so-called debtors prisons of today, right? That are, um, that you find in you know, Ferguson and surrounding counties um, and how so many people are just kept um, incarcerated um, as a means for the state um, or the counties or municipalities to collect debt, traffic, you know, debt or taxes or fines, what have you. So it was really interesting um, to read through these erasure poems or redacted texts um, as a means to kind of lift up their stories and how that's happening today. So I thought it was really powerful, but I remember sitting and wondering, it is no way that these um, words were all in one text. Like I was just like, is all of this really like redacted um, or erasure? Because erasure poems, for those of you who don't know, are really hard to create because you can only use the words that are on the page, right? So you have to figure out a way to stitch it all together, but you can't add any text. and. I mean, if you read it, it's so beautiful and so poignant. And I'm like, were well, all these things really stated there? So how, what was so that? They were all, so they were all there. <laughs> you know, just so that like, when we repeat this later on, just remember I said they were all there. And it was, I mean, I think these poems, I mean, I created a redaction poem out of um, the Fugitive Slave Act. And I, I think, I think the poem is dope. It was in the New York Times 1619 issue. And what I found in it, that one, what I did was, I said, listen, you know, you read this act and it's saying that if you run, we can come get you. And I thought, well, when I read the act to see what I would be saying, I was like cognizant of the law, cognizant of the world, and somehow, and I was able to read. And I was in Pennsylvania reading this. And I was thinking particularly about only judge because George Washington signed the act, and only judge was a slave by George Washington. And I was like, what if I was reading this? And I was just mad. And I'm just like, I'm redacting the stuff so that the poem says what I wanted to say, so that the act says what I wanted to say. I wish I had it in front of me and I would read it, because again, I think when you do this well, and I kind of think that I'm, 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 you know, like thinking that you're good at the thing that you decide to do. And I think this one was interesting because it took a long time for me to get to what I wanted to say. But I, I got to it and the poem is pretty dope. And it's like, it, it is a question. Were those words the actual words that they had to get that? Part of it is because I look. I mean, if I showed you my, um, my cell phone. In the pocket. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. You can't see that? You look fine. What's on the back? Nobody knows on the back. You tell them what's on the back. It looks like flowers or clovers. Clovers. How many of you do the clovers have? Four? Four. Okay, I have So right here is like one, two, three, four, it's five right here. I had three in my wallet. I had like, you know, two in the book. I just actually just found two yesterday. Anyway, I found four people with all the time. But if you say, I found four 
bones. And people who find them don't ever say, how do you find golden bones? But people who don't, they always ask the question. And the actual answer is just that I looked. And so those words are in, but it's just that I looked. And I ultimately ended up having to read the whole 70 page document to find the meaning in the poetry. And, and I was fortunate. I was working with somebody who wrote a review of Boston, but also the reason why Boston was good and the reason why it was compelling is because it was about it was all justice. Mm -hmm. That was such a poetic way to answer that. Over metaphor. <laughs> I like how you did that. That was great. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think I have just two more questions, and then we can open up some questions. So everybody be thinking about questions that um, you want to ask. Um, so I want to take us back to another poem that you read. You have, um, I think, four, if I'm not mistaken, different poems um, that all are essays on reentry. Um, some of them are four different people. Some of them just have that name. And um, it was it was very interesting. Um, I was drawn to these poems in the way that um, they speak about this concept of reentry, but it's also um, all of these moments that I think speak to why recidivism is a thing, why people actually return to prison because, um, you know, upon reentry, there are all of these things that you have to face and you kind of explore these different elements through the poem. And I just, I, I was just really drawn to, um, you know, this idea of the time that is lost how you have to reacclimate yourself. Like, there's just all these different dynamics. And so can you talk a bit about these series of... Yeah. Of so I'm not sure about recidivism. I mean, I don't think recidivism, like everything else, is a human mission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a huge portion of the prison population recidivates. You know, it doesn't just recidivate, I guess. They had a technical violation, which means that it was a, a rule that he didn't break. Not a law that he didn't follow, but a rule that he didn't follow. He didn't talk to his probation officer in a manner that the probation officer would prefer that he spoke to, which was in person, as opposed to via, via electronic text or note. And I was like, I want to see you face to face in this office, and therefore, since I haven't, you should go back to prison. I don't know if, if that's really the kind of system that we want. So much of recidivism is that kind of world. And I think also, um, so in that sense, I think that the poems are less about recidivism and more about the challenges to, to coming home. And, and and the reason why it's like um, essay on injuries, you know, it's like these meditations on an attempt at knowing something and the things that get in the way. And I don't know if those things that get in the way have anything to do with they aren't even about prison for real, right? Like like I think when we obsess over um, I think that we obsess over incarceration because we are obsessed with the desire to incarcerate. Mm. But a poem that is about, like the one that I just read, Essay on Reentry, and it's about telling my five year old son that I've been in prison, that has nothing to do with returning to prison. Except that every conversation is at returning to prison. Like the first poem does after prison, it always returns to prison. But it's not like a physical prison, it's another poem called Essay on Reentry. That's about um, just when you leave the way in which your conservation follows you. It follows you because it's your fingerprints. It follows you because it's in the gaps that's on your resume. It follows you because it's in the memories of the things that you carry around with you. And so with those poems, I mean, I was trying to reveal substances. Like the whole book, actually, you know, people say, 
And we talked about it then, and he would say, what do you, you know, I wrote four books about prison. But I was in prison for more than 2,500 days. And in those four books, you might have got 100 more thoughts. I remember the cousin, somebody else telling me, like, when we the next one, when we get some books designed about prison. I was like, I don't have fucking 2,562 days incarcerated. You know, and the thing is, I said, I wrote 120 poems about prison. And even in this book, that is not at all about prison, it is read as being about prison. Why? Because for some of us, prison is a gravity that controls the very foundations of what you imagine your life to be. And that doesn't mean that you can't push against it. And that doesn't mean that you don't find joy in it, you don't find substance in it. I coach my son's basketball team. You know, there's multiple ways to read that poem. My son has his own room in that poem. My son is able to wait for me to come home. And, 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 and then when I come home, he's able to get, be greeted with love and not anger and, 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 and shouting about lies he's about. The poem says that I was talking to over with friends talking about loss and pain, so that means that like, I have a community. You know, it's awesome, like, if you read that poem as, as about recidivism, you miss what's actually in the poem. Because what's in the poem is all the reasons why I'm not going back to prison. And every one of those poems that's titled that same Holy Entry, I think, I think it's all the reasons why I'm not going back to prison. And one of the poems, it says, my victim wrote me and says, I was robbed in, as if I don't know him. But embedded in that, is that the person who robs somebody is in conversation with the person that they robbed. So every reason why he's not going to prison is embedded in that. But if you read it and you think of it only as a prison poem, then part of it is just that, like, either I didn't articulate myself well enough or the reader is the point. Or I hope the reader reads it again and again and again and again until some of that other stuff shows up. But like, ultimately, I think those poems are about an attempt at articulating what it means to live in a world where, where the prison operates as a kind of gravity on your life. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, even saying that shit, it's like, I, I think it's all true. I think it's all true for me, but even saying that, I feel like I can say that from a position of extreme privilege, and maybe, 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 like, I should be saying something different, because, like, I got a Yale law degree. I'm, I'm more privileged in many, many ways than most people that I know. And so part of it, and part of me saying these aren't just my stories, is acknowledging that when we just say these things and put them in the living room true, I have to make sure that people who listen, who hear them, know that I needed to talk about domestic violence we didn't get into on the stage. I needed to talk, talk about sexual assault we didn't get into on the stage. I needed to talk about alcoholism we didn't get into on the stage. Because those are the broad framework of things that people struggle with post-incarceration. And I think that those things matter more in prison and more than anything else you might think, right? But they become the sort of thing that circles this experience. Uh, I was around you. You were not. That was insightful. Um, and it made me think about uh, the last point, which I feel like I need to reword now, um, taking the heat that would, you know, heeding what you just, what you just discussed, um, because I felt like there were a number of poems um, in this text that um, talked about love and also estranged love. And as you put it, the way uh, you said, prisons operate with a certain gravity on your life. And so when I say estranged love, I mean um, 
There are many times where you are referencing the weight of memories or time loss and how that affects relationships. And um, I, I guess my last question was around that. Um, if you could talk a bit about um, that and being in the book, which again, you find very often, and I thought it was um, so interesting to read about, about love in the context of this book. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, I wanted to touch on like a few things. I wanted to think about like people who live full lives and whole lives and sometimes lives that are like disappointing in different ways. And I wanted to find a way to talk about some of that disappointment. And some of that disappointment is just around like intimate relationships. But actually, there's no women. Um, there were really only a few women that asked for the right man. And they didn't have a voice. And they didn't have a texture. And people talk about the book as a critique of the system. And I felt like I had like failed in some ways because, um, you know, I just know we all just the, the book suggested that the men who have been incarcerated were like worthy of empathy and not worthy of scorn, worthy of, of of support, but not worthy of being held accountable for the ways that they hurt people and their families, and. Um, so I wanted this book to try to tackle that in some kind of ways, to try to tackle in ways that won't necessarily find a way to like demonize myself or, or like set up a um, effigy to be burned, right? But I did want to say like, you know, sometimes you're wrong, you want to concede that you're wrong with the horizon and past that. Or you're wrong and you just need it and ain't nothing to do about it. Um, so those, those were uh, the sort of real moments when I go out of, I think most of them. Seventeen hundred more questions because I was um, deeply moved and impressed and impacted um, after reading this text. But I do want to make space for questions that you all might have, um, thoughts that you all might have. And so I see a hand up in the front, um, just here. And so someone is going to bring you a mic, and I encourage you to ask your question. Yes, because we are podcasting this, we ask that you wait for us to come to you with the mic so that we can pick up your questions. Good evening. Thank you very much for sharing. My name is Debbie Ramsey. And my question goes specifically to your work. I'm interested in your work. That you stated earlier that um, your early writings dealt a lot with helping you to get through day to day. And my question is, do you see, I don't want to say ironic, but the same words that help you get through day-to-day when you were released, all the same words that help you get through day-to-day as well, um, and also it ties into the follow-up question about, um, I'm listening to your words that you speak about in prison and after prison, do you have anything for prison? And does the word like freedom ever come to like the psyche in that context? Thank you. Um, so I don't know, I mean, in terms of poetry being a vehicle to help me get from day to day, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was like a vocation, you know, I mean, it didn't do day to day, it was both. It was a poem that I read about a woman named Priscilla Clifton, 
who um, say that every day, come and celebrate with me. Every day something is trying to kill me and fail. It's a beautiful line, you know, when it helps me think about what it means. But it's another line, it's another one that says something like, it's about cooking grains, and it's like rolling grains against the blade, rolling grains, black is against the blade. I sense the kinship of all living things, which is a very different kind of line. I mean, so when I say that they help me get through my writing and reading, help me get through going time, it's, it's not necessarily to just help me get through the violence of incarceration or the heartache of incarceration. It's just that, like, it became the place that I went to. And, um, and, and, and so I'm not surprised that they're saying to me now when I'm, I'm, I'm not in prison. I'm not necessarily surprised because I'm a poet. You know, I was 16 years old when I went to prison. Went to prison at 16, decided to be a writer. By the time I turned 17, I decided to be a poet. And I was just fortunate to, to have some skill at it, but, but it's just about who I am. I mean, it's not like poetry allows me to, you know, feed my family. It's not like poetry allows me to keep the lights on. I mean, I'm a lawyer, I write nonfiction, I saw it, you know, I've done all kinds of things to do that. And I think freedom comes up in each one's life, but there's 1.7 million people incarcerated. I don't even, I can't front back here all 1.7 million people. I've seven people I can tell you that I know who've been locked up for 20 years. And so, like, freedom is always the backdrop of something that I'm trying to do when I'm thinking about them. It's always the backdrop of something that I'm trying to do when I'm, um, you know, representing somebody on that parole hearing, or I'm helping somebody write a clemency petition, or like even when I just finished the day working for a federal judge and I was a law clerk, and I wish you got to be sort of like a neutral party, and you know, I'm for the government or, or the defendant, or you know, I'm for the plaintiff or the defendant, and even in that case, I'm still thinking about ideas of freedom and justice and what does it mean to the law. So I think that's always in the backdrop. But I also think that like we get uncomfortable with suffering. And, and what prison told me is that if I was to survive prison, I couldn't be uncomfortable with the way I was suffering in the way that I caused other people to suffer. And so um, as a result, it is part of the thing that I do. I think that um, fortunately I have to listen to other people who don't do it. And I try to enjoy and listen to other people do something different, you know. But uh, we all need to do Somebody else had a hand up. They didn't put it down. Oh, I was just, some of it is in the back. Well,
She will walk out and never return. My employers will call me Leviathan and fire me. My dreams are now nightmares, but this history has turned my mind's landscape into a bedroom. I do not sing. Have lasted so many months now that the truth calling her is lost. Sleeping beside her when the memory is holding me tight as she did before the last time that everything was bad. I once asked and merged and tried to strain with the pillow she placed beneath my head. Imagine me explaining that to her while still shivering like a panicked and broken man. I stopped believing in God long before then. But that night, when I saw it was on the light of the darkness, I swore something of what inevitable is touched me. My children slept with their light on. I walked to that sealed room. My son was asleep, and his brother draped over his body as if he were a pillow. The way he loved his brother was everything in my time in the cell of anatomy. If I told my woman that, she would want to know if I thought I deserved all that loss. Her mother wonders why I won't let it go and hold on to the happiness in his life he had. But how do I explain that outside of nights like this is what I first learned just how violent I might be? That I think of prison because in all these years I still can't pronounce the name of my victim. I feel like I'm getting a repetition to make people sad poetry dreams. <laughs> and then I'm always having to explain what it means to write a book. My wife said, this is all I'm saying, Wayne. We just need some flowers. And maybe if we start there, if we get a quota of flowers in your book, then that means that there has to be a certain amount of joy. In fact, what about the forty clothes? Write a poem about them. And I was like, there's a poem about forty clothes in my first book. She's like, don't write about forty clothes. No, that's not that. All right, I'm gonna read one more. Um, so I was asked to. Um, so I was asked to, to contribute to a feminist anthology from one of my classmates, and this is the poem I wrote. Um, if absence was a source of silence, some things my silence would not hear. Not for my reluctance to speak or to think that the silence of his mother's tongue, his grandmother's tongue, turned instead of the woman who, when it's far too early for the sun to be out, sees me turn the corner with a new board, the sky and the ground is dark to defeat, and yesterday she swallows as she crosses into a might as well be oncoming track, remembering a man from a past. Stories my sons would never know, not because of a need to hide history, those bedrooms and ballrooms and work with trust became carnage. No, these things would be Pandora's box untouched. And yet they will know because. And the because is what I tell my sons about what their hands might do, and long conversations about what the hands of men do. Their hands, my own. When I was 12, a friend told me the man offered her money her slender and young body. She, no older than me then, arms not strong enough to carry her own weight, let alone push her past the men who wanted to own what is hers. Hers, just at first, the story that will keep returning, the never would hurt. Rape is aftermath, and this is kind of trauma. My boys would never know if the world differed. If war did not mean soldiers, man in the body of a woman that's laying in front of them. 
And he tried to turn this into sense. For me, my sons will hear a story about how hands like theirs, like mine, made something wretched for the memories of women who love or don't know at all. This is true. And that is not to take us to all that hurt. Some silence saying it all, but let's say the world is ours. On that day, all the silent tongues will have speak without fear of being doubted. Of the cause and hellos that became dungeons, and the friends who came to darkness that drowns all into only rage and sadness remain. And maybe after them, we can build memory that does not demand silence. All the things that happen now as if all the end will not be. And my son's eyes will be called out with days in which their hands and bodies do not suggest weapons. Days where all their mothers and sisters can walk down any street in this world with the freedom that comes from knowing you will be safe after dusk, or during those moments just before dawn, unlike today and yesterday and now, when the quiet of what might ruin is the threat that serves. Necessarily do. 
And I, I don't know what it is that I want to bring in because, um, like, I mean, you know, I've been married for 11 years. And my son's become a good father. My son told me today that I had the best job in the world. And that's like a beautiful, truly missed <laughs> <laughs> But it was beautiful, bro, right? I mean, my kid loves me, he touched me, right? I have a great life. The hardest one to be right is the one that's being out of confined with things to be facing 30 years in prison again. The only thing that saves me is that I faced a life sentence when I was 16 had no idea what I was going to lose. You know, it's profound, I find it profoundly unsettling that like adults have to go to prison. I just don't understand how I would ever deal with somebody putting handcuffs on me as if they don't understand about to turn 39 years old. Like, that is the hardest point I've ever made. Something that um, is truly confronting a life that knows what it means, that have paid rent, that have opened up a bank account, that have changed the diaper, that being called upon when somebody was in need, and have somebody tell me that I need to go to jail for some traffic tickets because I stole something from the CVS, because, you know, I didn't pay my rent and move to another state. And I guess because, you know, because I stopped paying my company, though, and decided I liked it, though, and I was just traveling. <laughs> I mean, it was a wide range of things that people get locked up for every single day that I think that they have no business in jail for. And the hardest moment would be if I ever found myself in one of those situations. I was on a train once. So on a train once, right? Me and my sons were coming from Baltimore. We all had suitcases. And you know, when you get in a train, we were coming from Philly. And when you get in a train on, on a train in Philly, because the train started somewhere down south, by the time you get to the Philly, it's kind of packed, so you end up getting a food car first, right? And you wait till you get to New York because for some reason everybody wants to go to New York. So when it gets to New York, you want to get positioned so that once the rush gets off the train, you can go find your seat, right? Before the rush comes on. Because if you wait for the rush to get off, the other rush comes on, you stuck in a food car. So I'm saying, excuse me, so I can sit in a little entryway with my son. You can just wait on the back side of other people's waiting. One person moves. The next dude said, we just want to get in front of you. We're going to the same place. I was like, yeah, no, well, we're not getting off. We just want to go and find another seat. First, I'm getting done. He fucked this. But I didn't even ask the brother's question because I thought that he just wanted some information. He said, well, that's stupid. First thing I thought was going to be stupid if I cracked your fucking head Then I thought that was not the right response. And I was like, nigga, did I say that out loud? Didn't say it out loud, so I was like, cool. He didn't want to move, so I'm like, next to you. So we kind of move him out of the way, sit back. And then he proceeds to talk at me for two and a half minutes. And I'm looking at my sons, and I'm like, damn. I literally understand what it means to be talked and smacking somebody and then going to jail. And I was looking, I was thinking about this movie called Prison Song, which is the worst movie I've ever seen. But the movie just happens to have a scene where the father gets into an altercation on the street and gets arrested in front of his sons. And so I'm thinking, I'm just not going to talk to this guy. One, I'm not going to get a fight in any way. So I was like, what would be worse, me smacking him and then him beating me up, or me smacking him 
and then him running, and then the police taking me to jail. Like I said, either way, it's both going to be bad, right? But the point is that something that simple could have provoked an altercation that maybe didn't lead to violence, but just led to me and him shouting at each other and security time, and one of those getting locked up. What if I had to write that for him? And that, that situation was so messed up that like, after the black guy gets off the train, right? This young white dude said, sir, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. And I was like, fuck, I'm old. Because you know, call me sir, dog. So first I was like, now I'm old. But then I was like, I don't ever want to have to write a poem where I'm reciting that story. And, and, and so anyway, that's, that's the hardest poem. But, um, but thank you for, for following me on Facebook and actually, you know, you write these things on Facebook. I write these things. I try to write these on Facebook all the time, but I would never say it all out. Well, I probably would say it all out. But like, I write them because I don't, it's in a space that I think, you know, it's permanent. I imagine it's only a moment. And I, and I don't know anybody to read. So, though I started this conversation saying I don't think about audience, that doesn't mean I don't appreciate audience. And in fact, because I don't think about audience when I'm writing, because I didn't know you existed when I was writing it, it allows me to be more grateful of your existence and of like me being willing to put that out there, because that's like affirmation. And so I appreciate that. And I thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, that's a good night. Thank you so much, Wayne and Brianna, for being out here tonight. I think I'm just going to go home and sit in silence and think about poetry. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.